The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. He is our Jehovah Jireh, uh, the Lord who provides. And so right now I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer and ask him to, to do that. Father, as we, just before we open up your word, the Bible, and um, look at Romans chapter 8, we want to bring to you, Father, this need that we have as we, as we see that, um, God, uh, we need uh, you to meet us. You have been so faithful, and your people have been so faithful over the past years. And uh, I marvel, Lord, at that, and I thank you for that. And, uh, Lord, we just want to ask you to please uh, lead us. Lord, lead those that are meant to give. And, Lord, may no one sense a, a, a guilt, a persuasion on them because of this. But, Lord, may, may you lead us, Father. Provide for our needs. We look to you. And we thank you for the many people that uh, together we have been in this church family and we we believe that uh, what we're doing is for your glory. So bless and guide us. And Lord, we ask you to open up our minds how we need your Holy Spirit. And today as we've been singing and thinking about your Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would open up the minds of all who are, are listening online and we pray that you'll bless that we might understand more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in uh, C.S. Lewis's book called Screwtape Letters, the Uncle Screwtape, chief demon, uh, rebukes the apprentice demon called Wormwood for permitting his patient, his human, to become a Christian. And then it's interesting that he adds these words after he has rebuked Wormwood. He says, There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Indeed, they are. We have been studying the... Book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the church in Rome. We've been talking about learning how to walk in the new life of faith. We've just completed chapter 7 of Romans where Paul has described the intense struggle that we have with sin, with habits, with things of the flesh that come against us. He speaks of his own experience of inwardly delighting in God's law and wanting to obey it but then outwardly seeing a different law at work in the members of his body. We discussed last week how we identify with Paul in the sense of feeling powerless over some aspects of sin and feeling that our lives are unmanageable in the way that God wants them to be managed. If we don't have that experience, then why do we need a Savior? Indeed, if we don't have that experience that Paul had in Romans 7, then really we are blind in some way to our own sin. And so last week we talked about how in chapter 7, 46 times Paul uses the first-person personal pronouns, I, me, my. 19 times he uses words like law and commandment. But only once is the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 6. Whereas what we see in chapter 8, on the other hand, is that 19 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And Paul is now seeing and teaching that it is the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian that is meant uh, to live the Christian life. 
He teaches this because we were not meant to live the Christian life alone in our own strength. We were meant to live it in the power of the Spirit. And chapter 8 is all about that. We experience, we must experience chapter 7, but only insofar as it is driving us into wanting to enter into the promise of God by His Spirit into chapter 8, where there is life and freedom and peace. Now it's been said that if uh, the book of Romans in the Bible is a ring, then actually chapter 8 is the jewel on that ring, and it, it is, it is um, a sparkling point. Chapter 8 is the sparkling point on that ring. And it begins with the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all about, chapter 8 is all about the security of the believer. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation from God. The believer is secure, but what communicates that security to us in our inner experience is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we face struggles from within because of sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And when we face struggles and persecutions and trials from without, on the outside, the Bible says there's no separation from the love of God. Nothing will separate us. And so, no condemnation is the first word of chapter 8. What is it that this means when he says there is therefore now no condemnation? Well, condemnation is the opposite of justification. In other words, we've been de declared righteous in God's sight, and therefore having been declared righteous, no longer is there condemnation upon us. And so we do not need to go on serving under the tyranny of never living up to God's standard. Christ has set us free from that positionally, and now we are being set free experientially by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that it is the law of the spirit of life that has freed us in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I want to just clarify today a, a teaching that I believe is, is so powerful. If we can just grasp it, it will change the way we do our Christian lives. And um, several years ago, I heard someone teach the concept of chapter 8 that using the illustration of gravity that even as gravity is like the law of sin and death, it, it weighs down upon all of us. We are bound by and we are enslaved by sin. And uh, without some other law that overcomes that, we are bound by that. And I, I think the best illustration is to think about the law of gravity compared to the law of aerodynamics. The law of gravity can be overcome by another principle or other principles called aerodynamics. And the result is that we can see in an airplane, for example, tons of metal and plastic and humans can actually defy gravity and go up to 30,000 feet and fly. Why? Because other laws help us supersede and overcome the law of gravity, laws of thrust, laws of lift. These are laws that can help us overcome. And similarly, it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that helps us overcome the law of sin and death, which is pulling us down. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The spirit is that which is enabling us to overcome. 
So a huge part of our maturing as Christians is understanding how to apply the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, how to walk in the Spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It is life in the Spirit that Paul is talking about all through chapter 8 of Romans. And you need to know that Paul is not talking just to a select group of super saints. He is not referring to some further baptism of the Holy Spirit, some second blessing that is reserved for certain Christians, those that are high-octane believers. Paul is not talking to a select group of God's special children on spiritual steroids. He is not describing an exceptional experience that only some believers get to participate in. No, he is talking about the normal Christian life. He's talking about the normal Christian life. It's so essential that we know that. It's so essential that we get this, that this is for you and I, normal Christians. We must not drive a wedge between justification and sanctification. And it's it's so essential that we not divide justification and sanctification as though God had two classes of children those that get saved and and just duke it out and struggle in chapter 7 of Romans, never going on to be sanctified. And then the others that get into chapter 8 and by the Holy Spirit experience that lift in God and that thrust forward in God. No, that is not what Paul is teaching. The Holy Spirit enters every Christian, every person who is born of God, who puts faith in Jesus Christ. And the God-given Spirit uh, is given for our sanctification, for us to be made holy, to overcome sin. If you do not talk once in a while about your sin, you are disobeying God. Because your sin is the only thing that separates you in the sanctifying grace that is making you holy as you're called to be holy. And so God wants us to look at these subjects. Paul has spent so much time talking about essential items in the Christian life. And so, you remember maybe some time ago, I referred to this slide, and I talked about sanctification, that whole green section in this graph, how it begins with our spiritual rebirth. We are born again by the Spirit of God, enters the believer and put faith in Christ. And from that journey onward, you can see all the ups and downs of life. The Holy Spirit is working to make us holy, to make us more Christ-like, to sanctify us all the way until our physical death. God is doing this, this process of sanctification. Now, it's interesting Uh, Because I believe that before we move on, there's two questions that I feel are really important to answer. And uh, the two questions or the two misconceptions I would like to address right now. Number one is, can a Christian have two natures? I want to talk about that. The word flesh is found ten times in the Scripture that we are looking at this morning, Romans 8, 1 to 11. Except for verse 3, where Jesus is described as the one who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, all other nine references are referring to flesh, the flesh being that sinful principle in our lives, that sin principle 
which in every human being, as long as we are in this body, even Christians, will deal with. As long as we are in this body, the flesh, the sin principle, will be activating and trying to drag us down like gravity, forcing us to live a lower life instead of a higher life. It is a force that can only become overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. The flesh is that sin that still lives in us, leads us to be selfish, self-oriented, self-indulging, unloving, independent, faithless. That's what the flesh is leading us always to do, dragging us down, an evil influence. But friends, it is not synonymous with a nature. And this is so important that we understand for this reason, I believe that the translators of the New International Version made a grave mistake when they translated these ten items called flesh, this word flesh in sarks in Greek, and they translated it as sinful nature. All throughout the NIV in Paul's epistles, when he mentions the word flesh, you will read sinful nature. Why is that a mistake? Well, because the Christian does not have two natures. We are not spiritual schizophrenics. We are not in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. And our fundamental nature is not the flesh, is not sinful. It is fundamentally in the spirit. That's why Paul calls these Christians that he's writing, and some of them very dysfunctional and immature, he calls them saints in Christ Jesus, holy ones, no longer sinners. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. That old nature has been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Galatians 2.20. Paul said, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4 that we Christians have been made partakers, partakers of the divine nature. The old nature has been crucified with Christ, and now I live, and the Holy Spirit is God's DNA that enables me to live the Christian life. This is, I believe, a fundamentally important uh, point to clarify. The Christian has just one nature. It is the nature of the Holy Spirit of God. The second misconception I think I'd like to address briefly is, is there such a thing as a carnal Christian? Now, where does this term carnal Christian come from? Well, it comes, it originates in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul writes this, he says, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, carnal, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Another passage is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Clearly in this passage, the Corinthian believers were among the most immature Christians of all the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. They were infants in Christ, and so they had not grown up. They were still on the basic milk, the rudimentary, elementary things of the gospel. And Paul had to treat them like babies in Christ instead of giving them solid food. But the fact that Paul calls them infants in Christ because they were believing and saying and doing that baby Christians do, immature Christians do, because they were acting in fleshly impulse doesn't mean it was their nature to be this way. And neither does it mean that there's a classification that we can separate out and say, well, there's the spirit-filled Christians, and then there's the carnal Christians, like the Corinthians. 
This, I believe, is not what Paul had ever in mind, and it's not meant to be a permanent state, an idea that there's the classification of the unbelievers, natural man, the uh, carnal Christians, and then the spirit-filled. That's not the way God unpacks it. There are unbelievers who do not have the Holy Spirit, and there are believers who are given the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking and treating them because they've made bad choices. They are indeed influenced by the flesh, and, uh, but God is saying, no, you need to rise up. All of us can live in the flesh to some degree. We can become tempted. We can digress in our faith. We can be, even become cold for a season. We can allow worldly influences and desires to affect us, but we can't stay there. The true Christian, the true child of God will not stay there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God will discipline us. The Father will discipline us. The Spirit will convict us. The Lord will correct us. He will give us His Spirit to move us on. So, I'd love to spend more time on these two misconceptions, but we need to move on. And let's look at chapter 8, verse 2, and uh, 3 and 4. The Bible says, for what the law was, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Three observations about this scripture. Number one, God did what the law could not do and what we could not do. Secondly, he condemned sin and he fulfilled righteous requirements of the law in us. And then thirdly, he set us free from those righteous demands by giving us of his spirit to live out of a different source than our own spirit or energy. And there's two parts to what Paul is teaching here. The one part centers on Christ and what Jesus accomplished at the cross, which essentially made us positionally righteous in Jesus. But just because you have been positionally made right with God does not mean that God has finished his work because his goal is to make you holy, and so there's an experiential participation in what Christ has accomplished. And that is what the Holy Spirit has done. And so one is a legal releasing from judgment, and the other is a setting free from the actual power of sin. Can you imagine a judge with a prisoner standing before him? Can you imagine a judge declaring this person innocent or righteous and then detaining him in prison? It's impossible. And the Bible does not teach that the Christian is forgiven only to be held captive by sins for the rest of their lives on earth. You see, that's the idea of a carnal Christian, that we we get there and we stay there. That's not the idea of God. And so he saved us to set us free, gave us his spirit to accomplish Christ's mission on earth. You see, the Holy Spirit is the agent of Jesus Christ sent to the believer, intimately indwelling the believer, to finish what Christ began and, and, and provided for us. <clears throat> Christ accomplished it fully, but it has not been fully realized in our experience. Now, some of you probably glaze over when I start mentioning old books and, and old authors 
But I have found that often throughout the years that my mentors have been a bunch of dead guys that write really good books. And uh, one of those books that pertains to the subject that I'm speaking of today is a, a book that is called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. It's by a guy named Henry Skugel, and it was published in 1677. <laughs> that predates the Wesleys, by the way. In fact, Susanna Wesley got hold of one of these books about 60 years after it was published, and she gave her sons, Charles and John Wesley, a copy of this book because she felt it was so important they understood the life of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what they did? They eventually passed on a copy to George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening. So this book has obviously done a lot to inspire people. What does he write about? Well, Skugel clarifies in this little book that people often talk about true Christian faith, true religion, being all about theological correctness, he says, moralistic duty, or affections and emotionalism. He uses those three things. And he says, finally, in the end, though these things are all involved, the, the biggest issue is all about the Holy Spirit in us. And here's how he says it. He says, true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature. It is Christ formed within us. The divine life is an inward, free, self-moving principle, a new nature instructing and prompting the individual Christian. You see, what, what he's doing here is he's talking about what Paul's talking about how the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from all the laws of sin and death. That's what he's talking about. John Stott says that in a little book called Men Made New, he says the Christian life, the life of a justified believer, is seen as being essentially life in the spirit, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. And so overcoming sin is available. I want you to have hope in your life. If you are wrestling with sin, if you are living in a secret place, if you are in shame, shut up to your own devices. Satan has you there by his device. The Holy Spirit wants to set you free. He wants to bring you out of that and into the grace of God, into the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus Christ intended to accomplish when he set his grace upon you. It's available through the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. And it is the normal Christian life for every believer. Let's move on to talk about verses 5 to 8. And in verse 5 of Romans 8, he goes on to talk about how it is actually done. How is it that the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death? Well, it's done in the mind, first of all. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. I want you to picture in your mind a sailboat right now. And I want you to think about how the sail is set a certain way. The wind blows, and it blows the same direction for every boat that's on the ocean, but the sail set a certain way will lead you either east or west. It'll lead you one direction or another. I want you to think about the mind as the setting of the sail in this way. Paul is contrasting in verses 5 to 8 two different mindsets, two different classes of people again. 
It is believers and unbelievers. It is not carnal Christians and spirit-filled Christians. He is talking about the mind controlled by the flesh or set on the flesh is actually the mind of an unbeliever. And the mind that is controlled by the spirit is the life of the believer. Now, why do we know this? Well, we know it because of verse 9. Look what he says. He says to the Roman Christians, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Pretty radical, clear language. Paul is talking in these verses about the unbeliever who does not have the Spirit of God, whose mind is set on the flesh, and the believer whose mind is set on the Spirit. And so we know this is the way Paul is talking. He's convinced that everybody who is a Christian does have the Holy Spirit and therefore has the mind of Christ, is able to set, have a mindset that is blowing in God's direction. He's describing the difference of those who are having the Spirit and those who do not have the Spirit. It's not the difference between a carnal Christian and a Spirit-filled Christian. Now, what is the word mind all about? Going back to verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds. The word mind, phronema, is a word that is used in Greek to describe more like mindset. It's very difficult to, I think, translate in one word in the English. I was talking with some of the tech guys earlier in, in this morning and in the uh, studio, and we thought that the word operating system might be a good analogy. The word operating system. The mind is the operating system of life. It's the thought patterns, the basic inclination, the learning, the paradigm, the thing that puts it all together. It means to be absorbed with something, the, the word mind. It does not refer to the occasional thought. It does not refer to the occasional fall into sin. It does not refer to a slip-up here and there like any Christian can do. It is the set pattern of life, the mindset of the flesh. And the word flesh here is a very important word. As I said, ten times Paul uses it. It is that sin principle which lives in us. Sinful appetites and pursuits, material pleasures that take over self-interest, self-promotion. And this mind that is set on the flesh, they do not have the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says that they in time will become hostile to God. Verse 6, the mind set on the flesh is death. Verse 7, mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is an unbeliever. But verse 6, it says that the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Now, if the mind or the mindset is the operating system, then the flesh is the software that needs an operating system to function. The flesh is, is looking for somewhere to manifest. And what does it do? It comes upon you, it comes you upon you, and it, it finds the mind. The mind is that which can operate the software. And so it activates. Now, in the believer in Jesus Christ, when the mind is activated by the flesh, it should be that the law of the spirit of life is saying, no, I'm not going down that road. 
That's not the mind of Christ, and we immediately extinguish it. I've died with Christ. I'm now living with the Holy Spirit, and I can do something about that, and I have the resources of God to draw from to do so. But the unbeliever finds in the operating system, the flesh finds a functioning system that will just gravitate toward everything that the flesh wants. So Paul is teaching us here, and we're just getting started. We're going to spend three more weeks in Romans 8. But Paul is teaching the Christian how to live the Spirit-filled life and how to be secure in their relationship with God, even though sin and the flesh still tries to have a playground in your heart, in your mind, in the members of your body. And then Paul describes in the last few verses of Romans 8, 9 to 11, the destiny of these two different peoples. The destiny of the mind that is set on the spirit and the destiny of the mind that is set on the flesh. Look at what verse 10 says. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is a scripture that Paul goes on to say, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is two different destinies being described here based on a disposition of the mindset on the flesh or the spirit. And to Christians, Paul is teaching that though our bodies, these bodies that we live in, they're the arena, the playground of the flesh. Like Paul described in Romans 7, I, have this, I delight in God's law, but I see this other law at work in the members of my body. We, we, we will wrestle that. But our overcoming grace comes in the power of the Holy Spirit to rise above it. And Paul is teaching in these last verses that the indwelling of presence of the Holy Spirit, who also gave life to Jesus Christ and raised him from the dead, after you have died in the, in the physical flesh, will also give life to your mortal body, and you will arise and live eternally. You will experience full salvation of spirit and soul and body. Far beyond the reach of any condemnation, in fact, far beyond the reach of even the very presence of sin. We walk around today in the world and we are very much in the presence of sin. Even if we were not in the world, we would still, in this body, we are in the presence of sin, the flesh that we carry within us. The devil who lurks and, and roams around like a roaring lion. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But one day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be raised just like Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. And you and I will be free from the very presence of sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is an incredible chapter that we are looking at. There are incredible truths in this passage. Would you pray with me in these coming weeks that God would unlock to our own understanding and hearts and minds an understanding of how to live in the Spirit, of how to apply the law of the Spirit to overcome the law of sin and death. Paul's going to talk next week, <laughs> like Paul's coming. Uh, Paul's going to talk next week in verses seven, or, uh, 12 to 17 about how to put to death the misdeeds of the body, mortify. We're going to talk about that because, because he's going to tell us that the Spirit, Holy Spirit of adoption that made us children of God, 
He's the one that's going to enable you to cry, Abba, Father, and get the help you need when you most need it. That's, a, that's the loving, caring God that, that has provided for every need for his children. A.W. Tozer said that when we have the Holy Spirit, we have all that is needed to be all that God desires us to be. I have to ask you if you believe that, that you have the Holy Spirit in you, believer in Christ, and that you have all you need because of him that you need to be to please God fully. I think it was John Owen the Puritan who said that that the sin of God's people in the Old Testament was the rejection of God the Father, that the sin of God's people in the New Testament was the rejection of God the Son, and that the sin of God's people in the church age has been rejection of God the Spirit. We must believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just believe up here, but put our weight upon him and trust in him and learn to live in him. I like this poem that was written over 100 years ago by a woman named Ella Wheeler Wilcox. One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. And when I read that, I landed on that phrase, tis the set of the soul. Is your soul set on Jesus Christ? Has the mindset that you have been informed and infused and inspired by the the Spirit of God? Is your mind set on the Spirit? Are you seeking to walk according to the Spirit? If that's been off your radar for some time, would you bring it back? Would you say to God, even this day, Lord, I, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe what Jesus Christ did was sufficient, but I, but I still am not drawing nearly enough. I think what, one of the things that the Lord said to me this week was, there's more. That's what God said to me this week. When I was studying this, he, I felt like he kept on saying, Terry, there's more. There's way more resource of the Holy Spirit. There's a vast power source that you're hardly scraping the surface of drawing from. I don't know about your experiences in the flesh, but I, my experience is, is kind of like one of those games. I forget the name of the game where you, you knock one thing down and then another one comes up. And you knock it down, and then another one comes up. I feel like that God, by his grace, enables me to focus on one area of sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's impure thoughts. Maybe it's anger. And I'm I'm working on those with the Holy Spirit. I'm praying God down and praying myself up, and I'm working on those. And all of a sudden, something over here will come and bite me. It'll be be, uh, impatience. It'll be a bad tone of voice. It'll be some other thing. That's what the flesh is like. The only way of overcoming the flesh is by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. May we learn to live in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, right now, I just want to give you this sermon, and I give to you the people that are, are listening to it. 
And Lord, you know us way more than we know ourselves. Father, we need, we need you. We need your spirit. We will be victimized and we will be constantly imprisoned and, and uh, enslaved by sin and the flesh unless you set us free and show us how to operate in the power of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Lord, show us what that means and enable us, Lord, to grow in grace. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.